You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Rory Grove's book titled Durable Trades, Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time. So I first found out about this book and its author a few weeks ago. Before then, I didn't know anything about Rory or his book or what he was doing. But Rory contacted me through email, offered to send a copy of the book, and I pretty much have devoured page after page ever since I got it. Um, I think I've read the, the whole book in about a week here. I'm just, just reading through a little bit at a time. Um, and I will tell you right off the bat, for those interested, um, I will be interviewing Rory in an upcoming episode of this podcast, hopefully in the next week or so. So if you do have questions based on this interview, um, or perhaps you've read or start reading Rory's book, just let me know and I'd love to ask those to him on the show. So right off the bat, Durable Trades is one of those books that makes highlighting, or if you're like me, underlining with a pencil, it makes it relatively pointless. Why? Well, because you're underlining almost the entire book. Entire pages in Durable Trades, at least my copy, have underlining, they have notes, this is one of my favorite books. It's definitely going on the top shelf. I had a really hard time putting together this review because there was so much that I wanted to say. I was just sort of exploding with joy as I, as I read through this. So I want to do a couple things. I'm going to give, first of all, my overall grade and impression of the book, and then we'll delve into a few more things, including an overview, some of the format, what to expect from the book, and then some of my main takeaways. But I want to start with and really expand upon Alan Carlson's comments in the foreword. Alan Carlson, of course, gives a great foreword to the book. And he says, this is one of the most groundbreaking books you could possibly read. I'm going to agree with that. I also think it's a just incredibly important book, both for men and for the church, for a number of reasons, but particularly dealing with this topic of men, vocation, work, and something that we talk about all the time on the show, which is durable households. So we'll unpack what exactly that means, but Rory does a phenomenal job being very practical about how men can build durable households. It is exactly this book, what the church needs to be thinking about at this cultural moment. If we're going to have strong men, we need to rethink our doctrines and understandings of vocation. We need to think about what's happening in corporate America. And if we want strong communities, and strong churches that are resilient and resistant to what's going on in the culture, we're going to have to build our own economies. Like these mini economies in local places where Christian brothers and sisters support each other and engage in work that is robust and resilient. And again, we'll continue to unpack these themes as we go along. So this is the spoiler alert at the very, very beginning. I always hate uh, if you saw the review and you're like, I wonder what this book is about, and then you have to read like 12,000 pages or listen for 45 minutes to get a synopsis about what I think about this book. Spoiler alert, I'm telling you from the beginning, Durable Trades by Rory Groves gets a five-star review from me. Two very, very, very energetic thumbs up and lots of shouting from my office, yes and amen, 
Often that startled my wife and children on a number of occasions. I am super stoked about this book. Not only is the book full of poignant insights and good essay material about what it's like to be a man in today's economy, but much more importantly, Rory has done an insane amount of practical and historical research that he spends most of the book really talking about and evaluating trades or specific vocations that have stood the test of time. So he's going to look at jobs that existed before the founding of the United States and which of those jobs are still around today. He'll look at how much you get paid, how easy it is to get into these things, and how family-centric each one of these trades or professions is. So if you're like me, I, I've been a huge fan of Wendell Berry. I've been a huge fan of Joel Salatin, Gene Lodgson, C.R. Wiley. These concepts of durability, anti-fragility, um, really trying to think through what the Industrial Revolution has done to the family. Rory's book, to me, it goes the extra mile on top of these guys. Because what Rory did is he said, okay, I love that. We need durable trades. We need family centric economies of some sort, but what jobs could you actually work? This book answers that question. And it gives you tons of material for you, your sons, other men in your life, that you could read this book, you could research trades and professions, and then you could build a more durable and well-rooted family in today's world. So very, very helpful and very, very practical as well. In the book, Rory shows how these concepts that we get from other authors, as I mentioned, Wendell Berry, Joel Salatin, C.R. Wiley, things like durable households, family economy, the importance of place and rootedness, and agrarian ways of life, well, he shows you how you can put these into practice in a modern world. And of course, Rory understands it well. I think he's a computer software programmer. He's worked in IT. So he both knows what it's like to be in the corporate space, and he knows how to carve out a life that it's kind of, I think, sounds like a blend between, you know, working from home, but also having durability in his life. He and his family have uh, purchased and I think run a small farm. And I'll provide links for their website where you can check that out as well. But he shows you how to do it. And this is a man who has definitely done it, as he explains in the book. So if you're a man wondering about what kind of work you should get into, you want to start a small business, or you want to prepare your sons for a vocation, and you're under the realization that college is probably not a smart idea for many people, given the amount of debt, training, and then you know, you're going to turn around and make no money and spend 15 years of your career trying to just pay off the debt you amassed. Like, If you realize that's a problem, but you don't know where to start, this book is fantastic. And for that reason, I would say it's a must-read and a must-read resource for fathers, pastors, or anyone else who's interested or invested in rebuilding Christian community on foundations that will stand the test of time. So particularly, and there, there is an additional forward, it looks like, that was added after the book was written because of the shamdemic of 2020. But because of that, I think this book is all the more important, right? Many workers last year were told that their labor was non-essential. And in point of fact, like to them, it's essential because you need to provide for your family. But it did reveal something about many of the jobs that many of us work, particularly if you're working a white-collar job in a white-collar profession. Those are actually incredibly fragile, and they depend very highly on a very fragile supply chain, right? One thing goes wrong, you have a little sniffle-cold flu-type bug, which is dangerous for a very small percentage of the population, 
and it, it's crippled the economy, right? People were, I know I was without work for three months, furloughed. So this book is, is really timely, I think, for helping men think through, okay, I hate cube life. I hate living in a cubicle. I hate having to move all the time to fulfill advancement in a, in a corporate profession. How can I do something different? And Rory, again, will give practical steps. As I said before, this book goes on my top shelf of books to read at least once a year. And I think it really is sort of a, a resource manual because I think most people will not just sit down and read through every profession in one sitting. But my encouragement would be read the introductory essays and then read some of the essays in the appendix. And then um, you can just sort of go through each of these trades. And if you have sons, uh, my boys are 13 and under. So it'd be really cool. And I've sat down and done a couple of these with them, but just read through a profession. It's like a page and a half each one. And Rory talks about how you can get into it, um, how you can be trained, and see what piques your boy's interest. And then you can find things for them to slowly get into. And again, we'll unpack ways that you can do that uh, as we go along here. So the first thing I want to do by way of structure, that was my overall take of the book, but I want to give an overview of the subject matter and the format of the book. And then second, I want to give my key takeaways about why I think the book matters. And then finally, third and finally, I'll explain how the book might be useful to you. So basic overview and format. The book opens with an excellent forward, as I said, by Alan Carlson, which is followed by four chapters, including an introduction, that unpack in essay form the reasons why a book on the trades would be necessary. The introduction is titled Against Obsolescence, and in it, Rory makes a strong case that our modern economy has produced tremendous volatility in the lives of working men and their families, right? They were forced to move away from rural communities into cities, and they're also now forced to move on a regular basis. And of course, Rory has witnessed this firsthand, just as many of us have, when supposedly secure jobs and prominent white-collar professions get downsized, you get furloughed, you get labeled non-essential, or overnight buyouts occur and you're suddenly without work. A lot of this has to do with technology and the rate at which sectors of the economy are constantly replaced with automation or technology. It also has to do with the Industrial Revolution and an obsession it has created with luxury, ease, and above all, efficiency. In order to achieve those ends, which are often pursued with idolatrous abandon and a wanton disregard for human limits, creational patterns, or neighborly care, we have created an economic engine that relies heavily on specialization of tasks, which in turn leads to a lack of self-sufficiency in individual lives and in the lives of communities. It also means many men get to spend 30 or 40 years inserting a rubber eraser into the back of a number two pencil or crunching numbers from a spreadsheet. Oftentimes, white-collar work, while it seems lucrative, is often soul-crushing and meaningless work. This results in a highly efficient, albeit insanely fragile, supply chain and a populace that is anything but self-sufficient, as the events of 2020 put on full display. Likewise, Rory points out that workers change jobs every 2.5 years, pulling statistics from the Bureau of Labor. And it's become nearly impossible for families to put down roots, invest in communities and churches, or have much lasting impact in a significant way. 
Like Apple's planned obsolescence, which is we've seen, right? There's lawsuits about this. They planned obsolescence into the cell phone so that every year and a half, two years, when the new phone comes out, oh, what do you know? Software update, your phone crashed, the battery no longer works, and you have to go buy a $1,000 cell phone. And this happens every two years, right? In the same way, many white collar professions are equally prone to disappear after only a couple of years. Again, I've worked in, you know, white collar-ish uh, professions in corporate America for, say, 10 to 15 years. And this is absolutely true. Every single person my age that I know, every two and a half to three years, you change jobs, you change cities, which also means you change churches, you change friends, and you never really build long-term lasting impact in local places. If you look at our grandfathers, what was so typical was my grandpa, he's lived where we live since the 1950s. He's lived in the same house. And he worked for one company the entire time. He's, of course, retired now. And uh, that's not our world anymore. So we've got to figure out something to do. And as Rory is going to point out, that might be by finding a durable trade. So because of the way corporate America is, because of the constant vagrancy, always moving, your job's always changing, even the type of work that you're doing is constantly in flux. This means that men's lives are constantly disrupted, and with it, their churches and families. So Rory asks a very pivotal question that forms the basis of the book. He says, quote, Is there another way? Is it possible to reclaim some of the lost practices of previous generations and lost rewards of strong families and resilient communities? Is it possible to build something that will last, something that becomes an inheritance even to our children's children? End quote. So one of the most important things you can take away from the book is this is a book for people who have been thinking, like myself, about how to leave a legacy with my children and how to leave an inheritance of faith and wealth. This book, I think, is a really good roadmap to help you think through some of the issues and how you can actually do that. Groves then expands on specialization and complexity in chapter one, both of which lead to fragility in and among the populace. For example, today, a minuscule percentage of the American working population is engaged in what we'll call primary activities, things like acquiring food, shelter, or other raw materials necessary for survival in the basics of life. Instead, today, we are predominantly knowledge workers, remember Michael Bloomberg touted that, who have to hire a series of specialists for virtually every minor inconvenience we experience on a daily basis. As a result, we're the opposite of self-sufficient, and we're very highly dependent. Another word we could use for this state of being is called fragility, and it's not what we want to be as men. Chapter 1 also digs into the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, and why creating a privately owned central bank has been a disaster for the American working man. He talks about why a debt and fiat-based economy is absolute insanity, and he points to many statistics like this one. The U.S. dollars since 1913 and the Federal Reserve Act, well, it's been devalued by 97%. Inflation has soared since the abandoning of the gold standard in 1971. This is one main reason why the boomer generation, who lived before much of that, can't fathom why the formula for doing well in life doesn't work anymore. You can't simply go to college, get a great career in corporate America, and be set for life. Inflation is hidden 
taxation. It's robbed current and future generations of wealth. This is something people need to realize, and this is my addition, not Rory's, but this is something people need to realize about 2020. We just had one of the greatest wealth transfers, i.e. theft, in the history of the United States, and it was all done in a hidden fashion. Again, to reiterate, inflation is hidden taxation. It's a hidden way to take your money without you knowing it. Meanwhile, all the wealthy bankers and financiers, the billionaires, well, they just got a little bit richer. So in addition to all of this, chapter one covers technology, the problem with smartphones and Google, and why artificial intelligence is rapidly replacing white-collar jobs, which in turn makes them highly fragile. Rory makes the astute connection that laboring in the durable trades served as cultural conduit whereby fathers and sons, mothers and daughters would work together and so transmit culture. The problem with separating all of that today through corporate structures and public education is that we are dividing families and we're prohibiting culture from being transmitted from one generation to the next. Chapter 2 then tackles the Industrial Revolution and how it has decimated families. As Americans, we seldom think about how the Industrial Revolution had disastrous effects. We just think, well, living in a more easy, luxurious, prosperous so-called nation is always a good thing, right? Our good capitalist advertising companies who want us to continually spend and spend and spend and spend, well, they tell us it's a good thing, and we are told that in public school, so we believe it. However, not everything about the Industrial Revolution has been good, particularly what it's done to families. Fathers and, fathers and sons left the home to work in factories, as often women did too, and children were taken to public school. The households were devastated in the process, and they ceased to be the center of much of American culture, as they were before. Culture and religion have been obliterated in the process. Right? You're just not going to have strong churches if people are constantly moving, always on the run, going to cities, changing jobs, etc. People moved to the cities, as I just mentioned, and there crime exploded. It's hard for us to imagine, but before a certain time period in American history, there simply were not what we know as today of police forces. It just simply wasn't necessary. Interestingly, Rory points out, public school was also forced on the U.S. population, a factory-type education system and it was often done so at gunpoint. Tells the story, I think, of Massachusetts um, in U.S. history where uh, the militia had to come and march children, take children from their parents, and march them to school at gunpoint. Chapter 3 deals with the concept of durability. Rory defines durability as the ability to withstand wear, pressure, or damage, and proposes that it should be our pursuit in a world that is as fragile as ever. In order to leave a lasting legacy and inheritance to our sons, we have to pursue vocational work that is durable. And as Rory points out, this means avoiding debt, it means owning your own productive property, and it means engaging in the trades that are not as susceptible to passing fads or unstable economic conditions. Regarding the trades, Groves defined durability as, quote, businesses that have been least affected by external factors throughout history, place, governments, economic cycles, invention, and social upheaval. Which trades have endured for centuries and still exist today? End quote. 
And so the book is an examination of trades that existed at the founding of the U.S. and still exist today. Uh, before I even read about what the trades were, I mean, that, that alone fascinates me, right? Well, if you could pick jobs and trades and vocations that have stood the test of time, well, certainly I want to be sending not only myself and other men I know, but my sons. That's what I want to prepare them for career-wise. Rory then unpacks the four factors by which he rated each trade. Number one, historical stability. Number two, resiliency. Number three, family-centeredness. And number four, income. The majority of the rest of the book lists a brief description of a trade, some longer than others, and then Rory explains how it rates on the scale of durability along those four factors. He includes snapshots of people who do that trade for a living, some challenges they face, and how it impacts their life, including their family life. He talks about shepherds, farmers, midwives, woodworkers, brewers, authors, ministers, and armorers, among many other. And then Rory rates them and gives you a little bit of information about each one so that really you could get started in looking into those professions if, if you wanted to. Finally, a few short appendices include other brief but poignant essays, including one I found particularly helpful on why we tend to denigrate handwork. It's the same thing that Mike Rowe and the Dirty Jobs and really focusing on the trades, that we have this view in America that if you work a white-collar job, that's somehow meaningful and important. Right? I was told as a kid all the time, God forbid you should ever have to you know, graduate from high school and then go become a plumber, right? No, you definitely don't want to do that, so go to college. I mean, people tell me that today. Well, that's why you went to college, so that you wouldn't be a plumber. Well, my plumber friend makes well into the six figures, runs his own plumbing business, and uh, I make a very small fraction of that as a quote-unquote white-collar knowledge worker. So Rory really unpacks, like, why does that happen in our culture, and why do we tend to think that there's something wrong with working with your hands. So now at this point in the show, I want to jump into the question of why this matters and why I think this book is so important. Durable trades is incredibly important because it takes the concepts of durable households and productive property, right? Concepts that were developed in C.R. Wiley's books, including his book, The Man of the House, and Rory really puts legs on them. In fact, Rory did tell me that in our email exchange conversations that Chris Wiley played a pivotal role in shaping the ideas found in the book. And so as a result, Durable Trades is a very practical tool for helping you develop a long-term plan for your vocational work that allows you to leave a legacy and an inheritance to your children. It's also a great tool for structuring your work around family in such a way that work becomes an essential transmitter of discipleship and culture. This is something as Christians we are just going to have to face. You're not going to transmit your faith, your morality, or your culture to your children if you're separated from them for 99% of your time. They go to public school, you go to your corporate job, and you meet for five minutes for dinner and that's all you see of each other. Yeah, cultural transmission of Christianity is going to be a complete failure in that sense. So we need to rethink our vocations and the foundations of our lives. Likewise, while more and more people are coming to realize we have a very serious cultural problem with neutered and incompetent men, with fractured homes and impotent churches, few Christians have given serious thought as to the roots of this problem. 
The Industrial Revolution has done more to erode masculinity and family than perhaps any other phenomenon in the last few centuries, and yet we're so often ignorant of it today. We've become fixated with efficiency, the novelty of technology, and this sort of pace, lavish living at all costs. And what we've ignored is the cost of all of this on our lives. Our brains are being rewired by smartphones. Even the founders of Facebook say this. Our morality has gone down the toilet. Our bodies are tubby pieces of jello that are good for basically no manual work. And we've lost our souls in the process. Men today often work meaningless, soul-destroying jobs that separate them from their families and make them nothing more than statist shills. Think about for a moment corporate America today. With jobs lasting only 2.5 years, it's no wonder men are constantly uprooted, constantly changing churches, communities remain vagrant and vacuous, and churches themselves never produce much long-term fruitfulness. How can you when there's a turnover of every 2.5 years of your church population? Even if they wanted to, men's jobs don't allow them to plant their families, burn the boats, or stay. And that's what we so desperately need in churches, neighborhoods, and in professions in local communities today. We need men to band together as a tribe, to build a community, to burn their boats, and to stay. We're going to stay, and we're going to build, and we're not leaving. And we're going to build institutions like churches and schools that keep our kids so that we can pass culture onto them. This is one of the key reasons our people, churches, and community Our relationships are so shallow because people are shallow-rooted in communities and anyone with shallow roots is going to produce shallow fruit. Likewise, those same jobs are overloading men with stress. It's the stress of cube life, the stress causing disastrous physical and mental health problems as we talked about in a previous episode on overload. The reality is, as Joel Salatin has pointed out, Men are not machines. They need sunlight, they need meaningful work, and they need motion for their bodies. Even if you were a writer in 1790, for example, you were more likely than not also a gardener, a shoemaker, a husbandman, a woodcutter, a soldier, a farmer, and more. So even if you had parts of your day that were sitting at a desk and writing, you had a lot in the other spaces of your life to be around your family to do manual handwork, and to experience creation, right? Cutting trees, being out under the sun. These are good for men's souls. There's more to life than endless productivity, something we've lost sight of in our industrial revolution culture. There's more than always higher efficiency and ever-increasing profit margins in a carpet-walled cage under artificial light. As Joel Salatin has pointed out, We're not so different than those chickens clustered in cages. But many men today spend 80 to 90% of their time away from their families and in these corporate environments. And the women more and more do as well. Children are raised by a God-hating state, and without mutually shared labor, there's no way to transmit culture. Most importantly, Durable Trades is a practical guide for how to get out of that mess. Yes, it's one thing to talk about it, And many of these authors in the past were good at that, but this is the most comprehensive work I've ever seen on helping you actually develop your skills and build a trade so that you can be self-sufficient, independent, and family-centered. It doesn't 
answer all of the questions that you'll face along the way. How could it? It's just one book. But it does present a cohesive understanding of both the problem and the beginning of some of the foundational and fundamental solutions. It also points you in the direction of real-world trades that you can support your family with. Rory talks about how hard or easy it is to get into those trades and gives many other practical steps for pursuing a trade along the way. What I want to do now is jump into some key concepts and key takeaways that I had from the book. These are just numbered, and then I'll explain them as, as we go through them. So first of all, men are languishing because of a wage slave existence, and so they need real solutions regarding their work. One of the biggest problems I've seen in the manosphere, in churches, like many of us recognizing that there's a problem with men, we're, we're not physically strong, men are addicted to pornography, we're not sexually potent, we're not making fruitful families, uh, men don't have a mission. A lot of the things that we've talked about in the show, one of the biggest problems with this is in many ways, these are symptoms. So you spend most of your time at work, your vocation is such a huge part of your life, and that's the way that God intended it to be. And one of the things that we need to understand is that until you solve this problem of men going to a job that is meaningless, where they're treated like dirt, they have no investment, um, their bosses really don't care about their life, they're constantly moving every couple years, until you deal with this problem in a meaningful way, our churches aren't going to get better, and our men's lives and our families are not going to get better either. So you can talk about theology, you can read masculine Christianity, but really until you figure out a work home life situation where men and their sons and women and their daughters are together throughout the day doing meaningful work that helps them transmit culture, you're going to continue to see cultural decay in the United States. So this book goes a long way to addressing that. Number two, culture is transmitted through the conduit of side-by-side -side work. So this is something that we have really lost today. If you go hunting and like me and my son, you're, you're quartering an elk, you get to see this, but it's like, wow, this sucks. This is so hard. Like this is brutal physical labor. And then we take the meat home, right? We pack it on our backs, back to the truck. And then we go home and we're exhausted from like a week of hunting. And we put it on the kitchen counter and we start carving up the meat and carving off the, you know, the, the fat and the scraps and the joints and the ligaments. And we're making steaks and we're making hamburger and we're grinding and we're mixing in fat and all these beautiful, wonderful things that we love to do. But it is a ton of work. And so people would look at us and they say, well, you could do that so much easier. Like just go to the grocery store and buy meat. But here's the thing that people don't realize. You're giving away self-sufficiency. And most importantly, you are missing out on an opportunity to transmit culture to your sons and daughters. So it is a culturally formative event when you get together to butcher meat, when a community gets together to can food, right? When you get to, when the women of the church get together to do sourdough bread and to learn how to do those things, when the men get together and say, we're going to learn how to smoke meat as men, right? These are ways that we transmit culture. And so one of the things the industrial revolution did was it said, hey, everything in pursuit of ease and efficiency we're going to create all these devices that are highly disposable and cost you a ton of money. We're going to create all these devices that, quote, save labor, right? Well, one of the things that they did, they saved labor, but they also deleted from many people's lives meaningful work 
that helped transmit culture. So we need to be thinking more about this. I tell people all the time, I actually am trying to incorporate more difficult labor and meaningful labor in our lives. So we got chickens. Um, we'd love to get land. We're working on that. Love to have either milk goats or milk cows. Um, have been talking to friends about that. How do you get into it? All of this is, is so important in our lives, and it's been a great bonding experience with family. You're simply not going to get that when your lives are so separated from one another. That was point number two. Culture is transmitted, th- transmitted through the conduit of side-by-side work. Number three, paper money is poverty. This is a Thomas Jefferson quote. By the way, he said, paper is poverty. Fiat currency, inflation, and the Fed are destroying America's economy. We need to get away from inflation. We need to get away from spending these fake digit numbers, like 797 trillion billion gazillion zeros on a computer were transferred to India for the LGBT community. This stuff needs to end. And as, as voting Americans, we need to voice our complaints about this, but we also need to realize we're going to have to, right now, the thing you can do is you can build real wealth. So when that economy crashes, and it will, when all the paper money crashes, just like it did in Rome, just like it did in Weimar, Germany, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to own productive things like property, animals, right? What does the proverb say? Even when wealth fails, you should tend to your flocks because at least you'll be clothed, right? At least you'll have food for your table. And this gets us to point number four. You can't put a price on self-sufficiency. Rory talks about this. Well, what price, even if you were broke, right, during the Great Depression, what price would you have put on self-sufficiency? Rory mentions this, and I, I actually have asked my grandma this. She lived through the Great Depression. And I asked her, I said, you know, how bad was it? And she said, well, we're from Texas, and we're landowners, and we were always poor, but we had enough clothing and food. And so when the Great Depression happened, she said, I didn't even know it had happened for years. And I was a little girl. And, and then into my preteens when all that was going on, she said, we always had enough. Our, our style and standard of living never changed. So here's a question for you. If you can't put a price on self-sufficiency, how would you rate your family's self-sufficiency today? I think that's a good question to ask. If all the supply chains crashed, could you provide the basic necessities of your life? Do, do you at least know a rancher where you could get meat? Could you go to a butcher and have him deal with it? Uh, one of the things we found out last year, if you tried to go get a steer, it was like impossible to find one. In fact, you, you, you call, I called some friends in uh, the middle of the country in Nebraska. I said, hey, can, I know that your uh, family does, uh, you know, they raise cattle. And you know what was going on? They were slaughtering beef and throwing it away because the feedlots were shut down because of COVID. That's what was going on. That's what, you know, FDA and government run food production is like. So what you need to do is you need to find local sources, right? They cannot be interrupted or not likely by supply chain problems in China. By the way, where does most U.S. beef go? China. Interesting fact. You can look that up. We need to build self-sufficiency. So how self-sufficient are you? This book will help you think through some of those things. Number five, the closer your trade is to meeting essential daily necessities like food, shelter, and clothing the more durable it is. So, the, and, and this doesn't mean that like you're a farmer or a shepherd only, like an animal husbandry, right? 
But if you have some of those things in your life, as many of us could start working toward, then you're going to be more self-sufficient. If you start your own garden, if you have some source of milk, maybe a neighbor is the one who has the milk cow and you, and you buy milk from your neighbor. Well, that is a great option that will make you more self-sufficient. And if you're engaged in those trades, you're less likely to be deleted when you know, the economy crashes or the government stages a, a shamdemic, right? So local is good, and then dealing with the necessities of life and some capacity in your life is a very good thing to make you more durable. Number six, efficiency and profit are not the only economic factors that matter. One of the things that really irritates me is that if I start talking like this, people are like, oh, you're a socialist. Like, no, because I believe in privately owned property. I don't want the government to be involved in any of this. How am I socialist? But I think what many capitalists, quote unquote, today don't realize is what we live in right now is not pure capitalism. It is highly controlled by the government. In fact, many people have called it like socialist capitalism, just like what you have in China, right? This is not a free market economy that we're living in. Okay, so that's the first thing to understand. And even if it was, just understand as Christian people, our highest priority is not necessarily efficiency and profit at all costs. We have to, those are important, don't get me wrong, but we as Christians also have to take into mind things like care for our neighbor, like what's good for our family. Yeah, this might be, it might be more efficient if I have a dishwasher, but, but what is the long-term cost of that too? Like, does it take away the time when you and your family used to do dishes after dinner and talk to each other? And now you just rush off to your tablets and watch your Netflix, right? We have to think through how technology actually impacts us. And we have to think beyond just efficiency and profit. For example, as I've said in other shows, you could be incredibly efficient at all the wrong things. So the book is helpful in this front. Number seven, just because something is easier or saves time doesn't mean it's better. So for example, you could have all your firewood split and delivered to you and you could pay somebody else to do it. But as I've often found, splitting your own firewood is something that is enjoyed. Me with my boys, with my friends. Again, meat cutting days are a great way to build and share community. What people fail to realize so often in the church today, especially if you're like in a city or, you know, in, in just many other places that are not rural, one of the problems is like you just have this low view of work and you're like, well, if we want to get the men of the church together and really bond, what we need to do is get together and just smoke cigars and watch a movie. Those things can be really important, but the most bonding I've ever experienced with men is when you're working together. And the same with women and communities, right? Work together, do real meaningful work. And that is a good thing. So just because it's easy doesn't mean that it's better. Number eight, diversity of durable trades produces the ultimate anti-fragility. So Rory mentions this, but more than likely, like an old-style farm is a good example of this. You don't just raise cattle. You don't just raise crops. You have gardens. You have certain crops you grow. You have pigs, you have cows, you have chickens. So there's diversification. Diversification of durable trades is always good. Specifically, if you live near, and hopefully you do, live near and alongside family members, like I think about my boys, how much more durable does our household become when dad has a durable trade, 
the boys can branch out into that or they can do their own thing, uh, but that's also durable. And then we have a way of insulating ourselves from the world around us and protecting each other as a family. So the more things you can do, maybe it's, you know, you, you work a farm, maybe you're a software engineer and you start a garden and you get some chickens and then you say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to be a coffee roaster. We're going to be a brewer, right? We're going to do something that, um, by, you know, by the way, people buy alcohol even, and especially when there's a shamdemic. So that's, that's something that's durable, right? And you can continue to, uh, keep working even when, when things aren't going so well in the economy. Number nine, many of the things we think are secure are actually incredibly fragile. And top of the list would be corporate jobs. Nassim Taleb talks about this in his book, Antifragility. But some things that we have just trained ourselves to think that, well, a corporate job with a 401k is anti-fragile. It's just so secure. But then you look at labor statistics and the average job lasts 2.5 years. So how durable is it really? Well, not very. Meanwhile, again, I, I know people like this in my life. Some of the most well-to-do, prosperous, Christian, godly people that I know are plumbers, builders, electricians, right? They're men who are very smart. They've worked with their hands and they built their own businesses. Those are the guys last year who were actually busier, right? Meanwhile, everybody who was, you know, spent four years getting a degree in something that was like me, journalism. I got a newspaper journalism degree, and within two years of graduating college, newspapers literally died. Like, they, it is the most obsolete profession in America. I mean, and the only people who remain in it are like Pravda, right? Straight propaganda. So that's a really good example of something that was very fragile, even though my guidance counselor told me it wasn't. She lied to me. So that's number nine. Many of the things we think are actually... Stable or not, they're fragile. Number 10, durable locally based trades are essential to the flourishing of the church. Men who can stay, men who can burn the boats. And doing business locally injects an ethic of mutual caring into the economy. So, one of the things that I think we need to start thinking about is building Christian communities where a Christian community grows and thrives because it supports each other economically, right? Your, your church has a midwife, your church has and maybe it's churches in the city, but you guys have midwives, you have, you know, mechanics, you have uh, real estate guys, you have people that are good at things that are Christians, they're held accountable by elders, and they can serve one another in love. And then they start thinking about things beyond just, look, the corporate shareholders that run your company, they see you as a number on a page. They do not care about you. They will downsize you, cut you, whatever, in a heartbeat, right? You watch shows like The Office and you see that this is true. That's why we laugh at it because we're either going to laugh or we're going to cry. And this book, I think, gives you something else. You can build something else so that you don't have to live in that crappy corporate world. And even if you do continue to work in it, you're not, at least not as dependent upon it as you were previously. So number 11, trade or handwork is honorable, noble, and often pays more. College is mostly stupid. You heard me right. College is mostly stupid for most people and a waste of money. We need to stop denigrating working with your hands. So one of the things I've been very intentional with my boys about is praising the trades, praising men that I know who do very well in the trades, and encouraging my sons to 
get into them as well. And we talk about things like, look, these guys kept working. Dad was out of a job. These guys kept working. And I think you can look at a lot of stuff Mike Rowe's done. Um, you can look at how the trades kind of continue to grow, like home building. They can't, there's not enough homes right now, which is why the price is going up. So that means they're going to be building homes. Um, if you can build homes, you can do woodworking, you can do a number of things. And these things are like they've always existed and they, they always will because we always need those tangible things. Everybody needs homes. Everybody needs shelter. So really just instilling in our children, that is good, noble, honorable work. And when you look at the scripture, this is actually what you find, that God's people are shepherds, they're builders, right? The first people that the Spirit of God comes upon is Aholiab and Beleziel, however you say that in Hebrew, um, the, right? The guys who are building God's house for worship. These are the first guys who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're builders, they're craftsmen. So that's a gift from the Lord. We shouldn't denigrate it. But that is so often what we find. My guidance counselor told me that, right? Well, you need to go to college, otherwise you're going to become a plumber. And I look back now and I'm like, God, I wish I would have have become the plumber. That might not have been so bad. Number 12, we desperately need to reform our own understanding of the doctrine of vocation and work. And we need to recognize the myriad ways in which today's corporate structure is destroying men, families, and churches. So we've delved mostly into this. What I do want to say is the church really needs to revamp a teaching on vocation um, and to address these issues from the pulpit, like the trade work is good work, durable work is good work. Like if you're a pastor and you're like, why is our church so shallow? Why do we never build and grow? And why are we not leaving a lasting impact? Well, because people are leaving all the time. And so if you want that to change, you need to preach and teach on vocation and work. And you need to help the men in your community find jobs that are durable so that they can stay and so that their children can stay too. The other beauty of if a man creates a durable trade and he's able to pass it on to his son, well, then you can work in that trade as well and you can stay there. And staying and being rooted is good. Um, You know, I was talking to one of my friends, a listener on the podcast, and he's got a business that he purchased from his father. And so what has that allowed their family to do? They've grown in one community, in one place. And they've been able to stay for a long time and be involved in their church. And this is the only way that you're going to have multi-generational impact. Um, so again, pastors and, and teachers and leaders in the church, men's group leaders, we need to be thinking about how our men can develop durability in their vocation. Number 13, and finally, this book is an expression of God's love for the church and for you as a man. Same could be said about it's good to be a man, masculine Christianity, or any number of Chris Wiley, Doug Wilson books, etc. cetera. Uh, one of the things that I was really struck by as I was reading this book after Rory had contacted me was uh, an extreme sense of gratitude. Like this is such a desperately needed subject matter for somebody to tackle. And then boom, without me knowing it and a lot of other people, God had Rory work, working on this book. And it, I just see it as such a blessing. Like these other books as well, God is blessing his church by providing material and resources for us as men to change, grow, become more durable. Um, And so this is, I think, something that we really can just give thanks to the Lord for and be grateful about. The last thing I want to do in this show, and this is much shorter, I promise, is talk about how this book, Durable Trades, could be useful to you. 
Number one, I think it will make you think more deeply about the purpose of your work, especially things like longevity, long-term impact, right? We, we've talked about in Christianity, in my lifetime at least, the last couple of decades, we talk about legacy. I want to leave an inheritance of faith. But a lot of times the things that we're doing actually stand contradictory to that. I want to leave a legacy of faith to my kids, but I go to a corporate job and I work there 12 hours a day and I never see my kids, but boy, howdy, do I want to leave a legacy? Well, the reality is if you do that, you're not going to leave a legacy or realistically, you're not going to leave a good one, right? So this book, I think will help you think about tangible ways to leave that legacy, to really spend time with your kids, to really transmit culture to them. And I think it'll also cause you to realize like we need hard work in our lives. Um, we need to be out under the sun. We need to be working alongside our sons and wives. Um, as Wendell Berry has said in the past, like the, the basic economic unit is the family. Like You realize that. And so if you want to change culture, if you want to change this country, start in your own county, start with your own household, and start by thinking about durable trades. Number two, how could this book be of use to you? Well, I think it's a great tool for training men so one of the things that I've really struggled with over the years is as, as a receiver of counsel, you know, I've been, my gift is, is writing and um, speaking and, and teaching and those sorts of things. So I've gotten involved in ministry and, and writing, but I, I really never have had anyone point me in the right direction. Like I said, well, what should I do? I don't know. Just search Indeed, you know, go on Indeed and try to find a job and be a copywriter for an ad agency. Well, I can guarantee you nothing will suck your soul out faster than that. So this book is really so much more helpful in thinking through, okay, yes, you need to think about your work, but what are some ways that you could do that work that still puts your family first, doesn't divorce you from them, and allows you to do more than just work a job, right? Um, so really a great resource if you're a father, right? If your parents, your mother, and you're thinking about your sons, your daughters, um, this is going to be a good starting point for you. I also think it's very interesting how these trades kind of form like, I guess, like the perfect community economy. So for example, if you go through the list and you're like, okay, well, there's a shepherd and he raises animals and then there's a butcher, he butchers the animals and then... So that's how you eat. And then there's a farmer and he raises the crops and the food. Okay, well, that's pretty good. And then you go and you're like, oh, hey, look, there's a midwife, right? Because if we're faithful and fruitful as Christians, we're making babies. And so we don't actually have to pay a doctor $800 for a bottle of ibuprofen when we only took two pills. Yes. If you look at your medical bills, that happens. It happened to us. We got charged, I think, $500 for a box of Kleenex when we were staying at the hospital. That's all nonsense and garbage. Right. And so you can develop things like this. Women, right? You're wondering what your daughters can do. Well, there's some stuff in here for them too that's really impactful. There's a ton of stuff, right? And there's a ton of ways for them to assist in household economies in, in ways that are, can be quite lucrative, actually. And there's a bunch of stories in here as well that should encourage you. So a great resource and tool for training. Third and finally, I would say this I wish I had this book. Uh, when I was in high school, instead of a crappy guidance counselor, literally, this is how I decided my profession. I was sitting in the guidance counselor's office, I think, in my junior year of high school, because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I hated school. 
I hated being cramped and, uh, you know, a school building. I hated being taught by leftist women. Um, it was soul destroying. I hated it. It was awful. And I was having to learn things that I didn't care about. So I go to the guidance counselor and she's like, well, you got to decide what you want to do and you have to go to college. So, and this is my job. So what are you good at? And I said, well, I don't know. The only class that I'm really not bombing right now is English. And I told her, I said, I don't really read the books, but I'm able to, I have, that's my highest grade. I had an A minus uh, because I could BS my way through the essay portions. What I didn't realize at the time was that I had a gift for writing. That's what somebody with wisdom might have told me. Um, and she said, well, what else do you like? And I said, I like watching sports on TV. And she's like, great, you can be a sports writer. Let's find a college where they have a sports writing program. And that was basically it. And one of my buddies was going to the University of Northern Colorado, so I went there. And I worked to become a sports writer. I graduated college. Um, after spending thousands of dollars on an education, I realized that the starting pay for a sports writer with a four-year degree and four years of working experience at a newspaper was $25,000. And you work nights and weekends. I was like, wow, this is horrible. Why didn't anybody tell me this? Right? That is the problem. I, sp I spent like five years of my life planning for a career that was terrible. And I don't do sports writing anymore. And most people don't because hardly anybody makes any money and it's not really a good field to get into. By the way, unless you want to be propaganda for the CDC and Fauci, working in the sports industry is probably not for you, especially if you're conservative. Right? So, guidance. I wish I would have had this book and guidance. There's many other ways I could have worked at a durable household trades and still done writing, and that's really what I'm doing now. But uh, yeah, it would have saved me a, a ton of misery. So if you got young boys, if, if you're young in your career profession, even if you're not, even if you're middle-aged and you say, wow, I need to develop durability, uh, this, this is the book for you. Highly, highly recommended. Well, definitely appreciate everybody listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. As I mentioned before, we will provide links to Rory's book, um, there's a couple of places that you can buy it. I think even one of those has a discount code. I'll provide links to Rory's website. You can check out some of the other stuff that he's doing. He's got a video explaining uh, sort of what he and his family are doing as well. And again, I would encourage you to check that out. Definitely appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome. Been sending out a ton of pint glasses and t-shirts of late. So thank you for everyone who has purchased those as well. Uh, by the way, if you are on Patreon, there is a discount code especially for you. Uh, so if you're part of the Patreon community, you can check out the post, which is private. And you will find that discount code should you want to buy a pint glass for you or your men's group or t-shirts for the same purposes. And if you're not yet a Patreon supporter, I definitely would encourage you if this work has benefited or blessed you and your family. It goes a long way to supporting and continuing the work uh, if you join on Patreon. So I definitely would encourage you to check that out. We've got three different tiers starting at $5. And that gives you access to content on the website, in Patreon, early access to episodes. And it also gets you, uh, depending on the tier, some free swag from the Hard Men podcast store including pint glasses and t-shirts. Of course, you can also purchase those even if you're not a Patreon member. 
And as I said before, if you are a member, you will get a discount code. On those, we've got free shipping going on right now. And finally, wherever you do listen to your podcasts, I would ask that you please leave a review. Tell everyone else how much you enjoy this podcast that helps us get the word out and expand our reach. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. Thank you.